My friends, are you good at reading signs? See, at the onset of the COVID-19, most of us weren't too concerned. But it wasn't long before a lockdown was announced in Wuhan, the first epicenter of the outbreak. And then we had a few cases in Singapore. We started to sit up you know, and begin to get a little bit concerned. And before long, we were waiting every day for fresh updates on what new measures are being rolled out. And why so? That's because we want to read the signs rightly, to know how to respond accordingly. See, when Singapore first raised the Doscon level, and maybe even before that, all the face masks, the hand sanitizer, and the antibacterial uh, wipes were snapped up. And not to mention the panic buys of toilet paper and instant noodles. And then there was Malaysia's implementation of the movement control order. That was another sign for many people to panic buy food items. See, by then, everyone became nervous whether the PM is going to make a speech, whenever he's going to make a speech on national TV. It became a sign to more restrictions. So news of the PM addressing the nation always sparked another rush to the supermarket. But I guess many of us didn't foresee the stopping of hairdressing services and bubble tea. Well, I didn't. I was still planning to have a haircut the day after the announcement on a Wednesday. See, by the time the confirmation came, it was too late to do anything about it. I didn't read the signs well. Well, thankfully, it wasn't too big a problem in the end because I often have my hair cut really short and now I have more room for growth. As you can tell, I still haven't had one yet. Now, not getting such signs is a small problem. At most, you become a, a bit gruffy, you know, like a caveman. However, signs for the Jews have greater significance. Signs are not just mere miracles, but they are seen as acts of God. And in Jesus' time, people were looking for signs that will point to the coming of the Messiah who will usher in the kingdom of God. And it was especially important then because they were living under the much-hated Roman rule. Obviously, not getting the signs right had greater consequences. Now, in our passage today, in Matthew 16, we will see that everyone is not getting the signs right, or at least not fully. In other words, they are not getting who Jesus is. So we want to see the reasons for not getting Jesus right. Why are people not getting Jesus right? Now, the first group of people who didn't get Jesus right are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. See, according to verse 1, they come together to test Jesus. Now, the irony is that these Pharisees and the Sadducees are not on friendly terms. Yes, they are both part of the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish governing body. However, they are on the opposite ends in many ways. See, the Pharisees, they are strict 
rule abiders, law abiders, and generally well received by the populace. The Sadducees, on the other hand, are the upper class, and they are friendlier with the establishment. And unlike the Pharisees, they do not believe in the resurrection. But now, they come as one united group to test Jesus. As the, go- as the saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Now, this is very much like my time in the army, right? Because a much-hated instructor or superior will unite the different factions in the platoon or company. See, people may not like each other, but they will act together against an enemy. And we see that played out in national politics, in international relationships near and far. Opposing parties can work together in hope to defeat a bigger enemy or opponent or sometimes a foreign country. So here we have two enemies coming together as allies to test Jesus. They asked him for a sign from heaven. Now what is a sign from heaven? According to popular Jewish expectations at that time, the Messiah will come with a spectacular and unmistakable sign of power. So one would imagine that they are asking Jesus to perhaps rain fire from the sky or or perhaps even a more spectacular and apocalyptic sign. See, the Pharisees and the Sadducees would have noted Jesus' claims about the coming kingdom of God and his identity as the Messiah. Even if Jesus' claim were fairly veiled, they knew what Jesus is trying to say about himself. So they came to ask Jesus to give a sign to back him up. Testing these claims is not wrong in itself. Because in the Old Testament, signs were often the means to prove and authenticate someone who claimed to have such divine authority. However, they are not genuinely testing Jesus in the sense of trying to know who Jesus is. See, ever since the start of Jesus' public ministry, he has been doing the impossible, leaving people amazed. He healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, made the lame walk, cast out demons, and even fed thousands twice. Now, if the Pharisees acknowledge those signs as those prophesied, there will be no need to ask for more signs. It would have been crystal clear who Jesus is. He is the Messiah who came to bring salvation to the people. Yet despite knowing all that Jesus has said and done, they refuse to believe, refuse to acknowledge who Jesus is. They are very good at reading the weather based on the color of the sky, but they can't tell who Jesus is. Therefore, Jesus chooses not to give any more signs to them apart from the sign of Jonah. See, Jesus explained what this sign of Jonah in a similar situation in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 to 42. See, in verse 40, Jesus said, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man, that's referring to himself, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
See, Jonah was still alive after three days in the belly of the great fish. And after that, Jonah went to proclaim God's judgment to the wicked Ninevites and they repented. Jesus then applies that sign prophetically to himself. He is going to die and be buried for three days, from Friday to Sunday. To the Jews, a part of the day is also considered a day. But Jesus will resurrect on the third day and show himself to many. But in contrast to the wicked Ninevites, these Pharisees and Sadducees will still not repent. Someone greater than Jonah is right before them, but they are still not getting it. See, we, we used to have neighbours, you know, uh, they have two, two young sons, and their neighbours who live a level below them often complain that their, their sons are making a lot of noise, walking heavily or playing with marbles that will affect their sleep. So our ex-neighbours, you know, who are really nice Christians, made adjustments. But those staying below them still feel that they are making a lot of noise. So they would come up to my my ex-neighbours, knock on their doors aggressively and hurl accusations against them. Now, there were times when my ex-neighbours weren't even at home, but they were still accused of making noise. See, there was nothing that could appease them. When they asked for an explanation from our ex-neighbours, they didn't really want to hear it. They did not believe my ex-neighbours because they did not want to. They have decided in their minds what things were. Similarly, the Pharisees have already made up in their minds that they are not going to believe. Whatever Jesus is going to do or say will not change their mind. Why are they not getting Jesus right? They are not getting it because they do not want to get it. They will not believe whether they see a sign or not. They are not going to believe no matter what Jesus will do. And that is why Jesus had to warn his disciples to beware of their teachings in verses 5 to 12. For their teaching reflects their defiant stubbornness and rebellion against God by not acknowledging who Jesus is. They have hardened their hearts against Jesus despite all the signs, all the clear signs and the evidences. The disciples are thus warned not to have this unbelieving attitude like the Pharisees and Sadducees. They are not to follow these blind guides in their spiritual blindness and hardened hearts. So their request for a sign from Jesus is not, it's not a sincere request for evidence. It is in hope to discredit Jesus or get him into trouble somehow. You know, and as the gospel goes on to tell us, the Pharisees and Sadducees are worried about losing their support and their status. They simply do not want to believe who Jesus say he is. They are not getting who Jesus is because they do not want to. Hence, Jesus called them an evil and adulterous generation. These terms were used for the sinful Israelites in the wilderness and also prior to the exile. 
So now the Pharisees and the Sadducees are like them. They have been rebellious against God and spiritually unfaithful by rejecting Jesus, the Son of God. My friends, what about us? Are you getting the sign? Now, I'm not asking you to go around looking for one, for we already have the sign of Jonah. See, on this end of history, we have the ultimate sign of Jesus' death and resurrection. See, many times I've challenged people to explore the trustworthiness of the Gospels and the evidences of Jesus' death and resurrection. They may come to a point where they will agree with you intellectually, but they are not going to commit and submit their life to Jesus. Perhaps, like the Pharisees, they find confidence in their own conduct. I'm not a bad person. I, I don't curse. I don't lie. I don't gossip. I don't watch porn. You know, I don't murder. I've never been put in jail. Or perhaps, like the Sadducees, they find their confidence in their wealth, in their good social status, and their so-called blessings. They might say, surely God is pleased with me and is on my side. That's why I'm enjoying all this. Now, if you are thinking like this, whether you come to church or not, young or old, you are not reading the sign of Jonah right. You see, Jesus' death tells us that we are indeed sinners. Sinners who need saving from judgment. And his resurrection tells us that he will return to judge sinners and save those who humble himself before him. Are you getting Jesus right? And sometimes God can give us wake-up calls in His grace. And some theologians will call them severe mercies that may bring some to repentance. So what's, what kind of spiritual lessons are you, are, we, are you learning from the COVID-19 pandemic? Or is it just a temporary inconvenience to our freedom and leisure that we hope to get over and done with. Now, some of us may be really bored with all this COVID-19 stuff. But let us not ignore what God is saying to us through this. You see, before COVID-19 pandemic, we assumed that everything would just run as normal, you know, like clockwork, with our work, you know, with our investments, with our studies, and even with our hobbies. No, we have our future, we have our plans all charted out. But now, the worldly things that we put our trust in and build our confidence on are slowly crumbling before us. What is God telling us? I think one of the things that He may be telling us is that life doesn't simply go on. We are not to trust in our man-made idols, but to trust in Jesus instead. So let us not ignore what God is trying to tell us. Why are people not getting Jesus right? Some are not getting Jesus right because of their defiant stubbornness. They do not want to get it at all. But in the next section, it seems that, wow, the disciples are starting to get Jesus right. 
So Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Uh, that place is built by Philip the Tetrarch. He renamed the place Caesarea Philippi in honor of Caesar and added Philippi to differentiate it from the coastal city of the same name. Now, this is a very beautiful place. But it is also known for the worship of the Greek god Pan. Now, the photo I'm showing you is the ruins of the temple of Pan. But forgive me, I'm showing these photos to, just to justify my course in Israel during my sabbatical. So thanks for sponsoring, sponsoring me for that. See, at this place, Jesus asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, the disciples know that Jesus is referring to himself, as shown in his next question. And it is a title which Jesus commonly used for himself. The similarity of the disciples' replies is that Jesus was only a prophet. Whether it's John, Elijah, Jeremiah, he's only a prophet. To the public, Jesus might have spoken God's truth and performed miracles, but he is nothing more than a prophet. But Jesus turns the questions, question to the disciples directly and personally. Who do you say I am? Now the you here is plural and emphatic in the Greek. It's no longer about what other people say. After spending so much time with Jesus, Jesus then asked them who they personally think he is. You know, it's like an opening question during Bible study, you know, about what other people think about this issue, you know, and that issue. But we will eventually come to the point where we have to make a personal stand. Likewise, the disciples can no longer sit on the fence. They have to make a decision on the identity of Jesus. As usual, the fast shooting Peter gave, gives the answer. You are Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. In other words, Peter declares Jesus as the Messiah sent by the God of Israel. That declaration, my friends, is a very huge declaration. See, the hope of Israel for a few hundred years since the exile is that the prophesied Messiah will come. He will come and save, he will come and liberate the nation from foreign rule and bring back the glory days. And Peter's declaration now shows that the disciples believe that Jesus is indeed the Christ who is to come. And Jesus blessed Peter for he knew that Peter can only acknowledge him as Christ by the grace of God. See, only the Father in heaven can reveal that to Peter. He cannot get it by his own human efforts. He gets it only by grace through divine revelation and not human deduction. And then comes verses 18 and 19, which are key verses of contention during the Reformation. Playing a pun on Peter's name, Petros, which means rock, Jesus said that he will build his church on this rock, Petra. And in verse 19, 
Peter will be given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever he binds or loses on earth shall be bound and loosed in heaven. See, the two main interpretations of these verses either minimizes or maximizes the role of Peter. Now, without going into too much details, we must recognize that Peter is indeed a key person in the beginning of the Christian church. He's the first one to preach the gospel of Christ at the Pentecost. And God brought thousands to believe as a result. So we can say that the church was born from that time. And Peter was also God's appointed apostle to witness the coming of the Holy Spirit on the Samaritans and on the Gentiles. He was the leading apostle from the start. However, that does not mean that Peter is infallible, as some made him to be. See, from Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 to 12, we know that Paul had to rebuke him for shunning table fellowship with the Gentiles. And Peter was no longer the main character in the later half of the book of Acts. And there was certainly no biblical evidence of any kind of apostolic succession from Peter. What we know clearly from Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20, is that the church is built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets and Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. So it is alright to say that Jesus built his church on Peter even though Jesus himself is the ultimate cornerstone. See, chronologically in the history of the church, it is true, but it is too far-fetched to say that only Peter holds the key to the kingdom of heaven. Peter is said to have the keys because he will be the first one to preach the gospel. And people will enter or stay out of the kingdom based on their response to his preaching. That is what uh, is meant by binding and losing. People's response to the gospel on earth determines their eternal fate in heaven. However, in Matthew chapter 18, verse 18, Jesus told his disciples that they and the church have the same authority as well. The same authority to bind and loose as they discipline and make judgments. So it's not only Peter's privilege, but the privilege of all Christians. But the more important thing is the second part of chapter 16, verse 18. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That is the church. Now, the gates of hell can mean the power of death or the attacks of the evil one. In any case, the church will prevail. As the apostles, the early church, then and us now, proclaim the gospel, nothing can stand against it. People will be saved, for eternal life with Christ. You know, Pastor Layo and I, we were discussing in early April whether we should still run Discovering Christianity during this period because we can't meet, right? And usually we have it as a class. 
And how shall we do it now if we want to continue doing it? Now, eventually, we decided to go for it. We just have different people from the pastoral team and the, and the DC team to conduct the class online, one-to-one or one-to-two. And I was humbled by the number of people who signed up. See, not all of them will believe in Christ, but the gospel will go forth through his servants and some will enter his kingdom. It may not be now, but it can be at some point down the road. So brothers and sisters, we all hold the key of the kingdom of heaven because we have the good news of Jesus Christ. So who can we reach out to even in these times? And perhaps it is precisely these times that the Christian message of hope shines brightest. So pray, go forth and proclaim Christ and always be prepared to give an answer for the hope you profess because the gates of Hades will not stand against it. So are the disciples of Peter finally getting Jesus right? With Peter's confession, it seems like their spiritual eyes are finally open. However, they are still not getting it right as we move to the next section. Jesus continues to reveal more about himself in verse 21. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now Peter responded by taking Jesus aside to rebuke him. Wow, disciple rebukes the master. See, Peter has already made a significant declaration that Jesus is the Christ. So why did Peter not understand? Now, Peter may have reached stage one of knowing that Jesus is the Christ, but he has yet to reach stage two of recognizing that Jesus is not just the Christ, but the suffering Christ. Now, this is in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies such as Isaiah 53. Now, if Peter was more spiritually discerning, he would have understood the allusions and recognized that Jesus, the servant king, has to suffer and die so that sinners can be healed and forgiven for our sin. But Peter does not get it and even rebukes Jesus. He may have believed that Jesus is the Christ, but he cannot accept Jesus as the suffering Christ. But why is Peter not getting it? Well, the Pharisees and Sadducees are not getting Jesus right because they do not want to. However, Peter is not getting it because he has preconceived ideas about God and his ways of salvation. See, like the rest of the Israelites, he's still thinking that Christ must be a warring military king who will liberate Israel by physical might and strength. So a Christ that would suffer and die was offensive for Peter and for all the Jews. It is unconceivable that their king will suffer and die. Peter just can't get around it. And for that misconstrued reason, 
Peter rebukes Jesus and tries to put him in place. But in return, Jesus rebukes Peter with really strong words. Jesus said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance or a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, it sounds really harsh for someone who was called the rock just a while ago. But he's now the stumbling block because he does not set his mind on the things of God. But here's the truth for us. See, we are either for God or we are against him. We are either servants of God or we are servants of Satan. There is actually no neutral ground. Now, we may think that we are masters of our own lives, but the rejection of God and his ways tells us that we are under the rule of Satan. See, Peter's preconceived ideas about an outwardly powerful Christ fed on man's desire to be glamorous and proud. The idea of a suffering and humble king doesn't sit well. The sinful desires of human beings are the work of Satan against God. Satan turns men against God and uses them to try to derail God's purposes. Peter has reached stage one of his understanding of who Jesus is as the Christ, but he needs to reach stage two of believing that Jesus is the suffering Christ. Otherwise, he is not following the right Christ. And I suppose that was the reason why Jesus charged the disciples not to tell others about him or tell others that he is the Christ in verse 20 because they are still not getting Jesus right. The idea of following uh, a suffering king was insulting and surely not glamorous in the present life. And furthermore, if our king was a suffering Christ, it would mean that they will likely be suffering as well. So Jesus gave his challenge in verse 24 to the people then and to us as well. If anyone would come after Jesus, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and following and follow him. That is to follow the suffering Jesus. And the consequences of following and not following Jesus, who is the suffering Christ, are great. For Jesus said in verse 25 to 27, Therefore, whoever will save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. For the disciples and the early Christians, it was quite immediate. Shortly after Jesus died and rose again, they were persecuted by both the Jews and the Romans. The early Christians were arrested, beaten, whipped, stoned to death, and beheaded. Traditions also have it that some were crucified like Jesus. See, taking out the cross would have been literal. 
They died for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. But verse 25 gave us a paradoxical consequence. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What it means is that those who try to save and keep the kind of life they want in this life, they will ultimately lose their life eternal. But those who lose their lives, which is to give up their self-directed life, or perhaps even their literal life, for the sake of Christ, they will receive and save their life eternal. For Jesus will come again, come again as the resurrected King, to judge and to reward each one according to how they have responded to him in their earthly life. See, if we weigh up the value of life now, the gains of the whole world, the pride of this life against the value of the eternal life and the acceptance of the glorious king, the answer is quite clear, isn't it? The former will pale in comparison. The latter is of much greater value and is more lasting. The choice should be clear. So what does that mean for us? I think the same question posed to the disciples is posed to us. Jesus is also asking you, who do you think or who do you say I am. It's an important question. Who Jesus is to us will affect how we live our lives and our eternal destiny. So we must be careful, careful not to fall into the trap like Peter, who had a preconceived idea of who Jesus is. We are not like the disciples who had to learn in two stages. Jesus' revelation of himself is clear to us now. He is the suffering Christ who died and rose again. And he calls us to be prepared to suffer for his sake. So we must be careful not to think that Jesus is necessarily leading us to a glamorous and so-called smooth and successful life on this earth. There may not be a quick solution to our work issues, our relationship problems, our sexuality struggles, and our physical illnesses. See, happiness, success in this world, and a trouble-free life is not the ultimate purpose of Jesus in our world now. And we see that in his life on earth. When he healed the people out of his compassion, his priority was to preach the gospel out of obedience to the Father's will. But those healings were signs of the renewed world in the future, and we can be confident about it. But for now, our lives in this fallen world may be marked with suffering. So we are to be careful, careful of Peter's preconceived ideas that our lives must be glamorous, triumphant, and smooth in this life. These are the things of men, which are planted in our hearts by Satan, and they are not the things of God. Such false preconception of who Jesus is will lead us 
to wrong understanding of what a Christian life would be. Or perhaps we think that being a Christian would merely mean a few adjustments in our ordinary lives. We may not outwardly deny Christ, but we are caught up with so many things in life that we fail to see who Jesus is and what he's calling us to. Many early Christians have died for the gospel's sake, and some will do today. But Satan has other strategies if we read the parable of the soils. Wow, there's no need to persecute Christians. Just keep them busy. Keep them distracted. Let them worry about the cares of this world. Make them forget that the kingdom of God has already broken in with the coming of Christ. Let them not take every opportunity at home, work, church, and with friends as an opportunity to live for Jesus. Let them pretend that they can profess Jesus as Lord, but leave it whatever way they want to please themselves. My friends, the call to deny ourselves it's not a call to ascetic suffering, to be poor as we can be, to starve ourselves and to live like a hermit. I think Professor Ernest Best said it well. He says that it is not the denial of something to the self, but the denial of the self itself. In other words, we are not to live for ourselves. We are living for Christ 24-7. We are to deny the sinful self who wants to look good for, before others and determine what is good according to our own eyes and to please ourselves. Someone once told me that it's okay, okay for him to leave his wife and marry someone else because God wants him to be happy. And as some will say that, well, it's okay to date or marry a non-Christian, you know, or marry anyone because that might bring that person to know Jesus. Isn't that what God wants, they say? Now, we cannot pretend that we are following Jesus by believing in excuses to please ourselves. It was something, you know, even for Mason and I, we had to remind ourselves again and again. See, when we help our children in their studies, are we helping them to learn well as students, as a responsible student? Or are we just worried that they will land up in some socially less desirable job? And when I'm working, is it for God and His glory? Or is it for my self-gratification and pride? See, following Jesus requires costly discipleship. It's a radical change of our life direction and values. It is not cheap, but costly, as the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer will say. But such costly discipleship is still grace from Christ. And it is a costly grace that we will find, test, and approve to be the best and rewarding in the end. So my brothers and sisters in Christ, May we follow the things of God and deny ourselves, take up the cross and follow our Jesus Christ who suffered for our sake and for God's glory. And may God grant us spiritual ears to hear, spiritual eyes to see and a transformed heart 
to take up the cross. Let us go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in so many ways and ultimately in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. For on our own, we would have considered the crucified and suffering Christ foolish. So we want to thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit to not only know your salvation plan in Christ, but also to believe in it. Enable us now, dear Father, to live by your ways and not the ways of the world. Help us not to chase after the things of this world, simply to please ourselves and to look good in the eyes of the world. But help us instead to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow you. May we trust in you and live humbly for your glory and for our joy. And strengthen us, O Lord, to persevere until the day of your coming when each of us will receive our commendation from you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.